Hey everyone, Saltgrass Steakhouse is now open in Mishawaka. Wrangle up the crew and head down to Saltgrass Mishawaka for an unforgettable experience. Sink your teeth into mouth-watering char-grilled, certified Angus beef steaks. Sip on ice-cold craft cocktails. And don't forget to try the famous Spicy Range Rattlers, all made daily in the Scratch Kitchen. Start making delicious memories at Saltgrass Mishawaka, 5126 North Main Street, across from Lazy Boy Furniture Galleries. Dine with us today. Portions of the day's programming are reproduced by means of electrical transcriptions or tape recording. This is Budweiser's weekday sports beat. Never say never, but never. I plan on leading this team with an unwavering standard. Everybody love everybody. We will call it the golden standard. And this is the standard that will drive this football program to its 12th national championship. With Sean Styers. I like that guy. Hey, what you could do is, is you could have a barbecue on that head. It's a good time, you know what I mean? On Sports Radio 960 AM, double. USBT. He's running down the middle by the 50. He's bare chested and banging his chest. They're chasing him. They're not going to get him. And now your host, Sean Styers. All right. Friday, Friday, Friday. He's here. Day two of the NFL draft is tonight. Cal Hamilton has a new home. He goes 14th to Baltimore in the first round. Bears and Colts have their first pick of the draft in the second round tonight. You think either Kyron Williams or Kevin Austin Jr. is going to hear their name called tonight? We'll find out when the draft continues, and we'll talk about them in a little bit. Did you watch the draft last night? I will uh, I will admit I did it a little bit unconventionally. <laughs> it, uh, it quote-unquote air quotes, I'm doing air quotes right now, started at 8, which meant like what, closer to 8.15 or 8.20. Um, so I set my, got home, recorded it you know set the dvr to record it and then i watched an episode of severance <laughs> is what i did on apple tv have you seen severance it was it's one of those shows to me anyway it was kind of tough getting into little slow getting started i grinded through the first few episodes really was like doubting do i really want to keep watching this i kept hearing how great it was wasn't seeing it, but I kind of kept at it, waiting for some payoff, and then finally, it happened. I watched, I think it was episodes, yeah, it would have been episode seven last night, and then when I was done, I go to the DVR, because by now it's like 8.30ish, something like that, so watch my episode of Severance, go to the DVR, forward through some commercials, get to the first pick of the draft. There goes Trayvon Walker to Jacksonville. Aiden Hutchinson follows with the, to the Lions at number two. Get through some more commercials. friend of mine then actually calls, and he's driving in, into town uh, for Notre Dame's College World Series reunion this weekend. We talked for about an hour or so while he was driving, helped him kill some time, and you know then Draft kind of fades into the background at that point, but I still had it on. I'm paying attention. Kyle Hamilton gets drafted by the Ravens, you know, sometime during that conversation. And then by the time we hang up, he's making another pit stop somewhere on I-80 out there in the dark. I was at that point waiting to see who the Cowboys took at 24. And, you know, they took a tackle from Tulsa. Not overly thrilled by it, but oh, well, it's what happens, you know. So then after all that, it's, you know, it's a little bit later, and I, I was like, well, put in another episode of Severance. <laughs> so I did that huge cliffhanger at the end of that episode, and I'm like, well, I'm not going to bed now. And so I go into the third episode, major, major 
uh, discovery there. No spoilers for you if, you if you haven't seen it and maybe you're thinking about it. But turns out I had just watched the finale. I didn't even realize I was watching the season finale of the thing until it was over. And so now I finished Severance after the draft last night. So now it's on to Ozark. But anyway, that was my draft experience last night. A little bit, little bit different. Uh, but it was... You know, there were a couple trades made in there and, you know, Eagles, Cardinals, Titans, Ravens all involved. And, you know, they swapped some wide receivers around, some draft picks got traded, but uh, no trade involving Cal Hamilton. He is now a Baltimore Raven. Let's hear from the new Baltimore Raven. First off, I'm very excited to be in Baltimore. Um, one of the best organizations in the league, and to be able to play for for a team like that from the start, I'm excited. Uh, hope to win a Super Bowl this year. Hopefully, I can add to that uh, that mission, and uh, we can complete that. But uh, I mean, in terms of falling or whatever sliding, like people say, you never really know uh, going into the draft whether somebody's falling or sliding. That may just have been where they were supposed to go. So. I feel like I just went to the right team at the end of the day. And, uh, going into the draft night is a bunch of questions, uh, probably more questions than answers. And um, I, throughout the process, I know the Ravens like me, and uh, I visited with them, and it was a great visit. And I like them. They like me, obviously. And uh, I'm excited to get this thing started. Uh, in terms of Ed Reed, um, I know he's the GOAT, if not top two safety ever. And um, hopefully get to get to pick his brain a little bit, um, get some knowledge from him. And um, at the end of the day, it's big shoes to fill, but I feel like I – uh, if I can do everything I can and best my abilities, I can fill it. So there's Kyle Hamilton drafted by the Baltimore Ravens. Notre Dame's 70th, 70th all-time player drafted in the first round. First for the program since Jerry Tillery three years ago. Hamilton also the first Notre Dame defensive back picked in the first round since Harrison Smith went to the Vikings with the 29th pick in 2012. And the number 14 pick for Hamilton, the highest defensive back. A defensive back has been drafted since Todd Light went fifth overall in 1991. Hamilton also the highest drafted player since Bryant Young went at number seven overall to San Francisco in 1994. So some uh, some uh, pretty, uh, pretty, pretty big distinctions for Kyle Hamilton last night going 14th overall to the Baltimore Ravens. So, you know, wish him well. I'll be honest. You know, I'm a Cowboys fan. I'm, I'm mostly glad he just wasn't drafted by any of the other three NFC East teams last night. I was kind of holding my breath every time they came around because, you know, they all had picks before that number 14 pick. Giants had two of them in that range. They had a nice draft last night, getting Thibodeau and the uh, offensive lineman from Alabama as well. But then, you know, Washington ultimately traded down, and that was a spot that that uh, some people were projecting Hamilton to Washington at number eleven. They trade down though, and I don't know about you, but you know, like we follow these Irish players for the most part. You know, you 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 you, you pull for them to some extent once they land in the NFL. But if you're the fan of an NFL team, like if you're not a, an NFL fan, then yeah, you keep you know pulling hard for your for all those guys you know the former Notre Dame guys and and all that but if you're the fan of a team in the NFL they're not on your team it's like okay yeah whatever <laughs> you know it's like Zach Martin's been a great offensive lineman for the Cowboys but if you're not a Cowboys fan be honest you really don't care how much success Zach Martin's had there you know until he comes back to Notre Dame and he's working with the current players and that kind of stuff but by the way how about the move the Lions made they trade up from 32 
to 12th with Minnesota, and they grab Alabama wide receiver Jamison Williams, one of six receivers to go in the first round last night. Both the uh, Bears and Colts potentially looking for receivers as well when they make their first picks of the draft tonight in the second round. The Bears have uh, the seventh pick tonight, 39th overall, so they will have the, you know, once the clock starts, they'll they'll make the seventh pick tonight, assuming they don't trade. Uh, the Colts pick 10th tonight, 42nd overall. And the Bears also have another second round pick at 48th overall. So they'll have two of the first 16 picks of the second round tonight. The Bears will be interesting to see where they go. But, you know, the NFL makes it mandatory for uh, each of the team's coaches and general managers to hold press conferences leading up to the draft. Well, because fan engagement but you know the Bears general manager fielded this question an interesting one Ryan Poles new Bears general manager fielded this question about needs and player evaluations recently and I'll let you uh, hear the question and how Poles answered it as well the wide receiver group and what you have already been able to see of what you have on the field you go into it thinking, okay, this is what we don't have. Like, I need to address finding a big body receiver, an X in the draft, or how do you look at that on, with some of the day two picks? Yeah, you're aware of it, so you're going you're gonna to look for it. Um, it has to be there, and it has to be at the right level. And I think that's, the, like, the biggest takeaway is, like, you can talk yourself into anything at this point. That's why I'm not overcooking this board. I'm taking a step back over to after today because I think sometimes you, you keep staring at it and you'll start sliding guys around and doing crazy stuff. Um, but in terms of being specific, you just, yeah, you're looking to identify it, but the key is making sure it's in the right value on the board. Yeah, making sure it's at the right value on the board. Translation there from Ryan Poles is don't reach. You know, you, you, you can't say, well, we need a big-bodied wide receiver, so we're going to take a big-bodied wide receiver high in the second round just because that's what we need right now, even though he has, you know, a late third-round grade. And, you know, like all this talk with, with the Packers about, well, they didn't take another wide receiver once again. Well, by the time their pick came around, later in the first round, the best wide receivers were already gone. So, you know, again, it's like, do you reach just to take a wide receiver or do you pick the best available talent? And, you know, the Bears' previous regime was not good at this kind of stuff. It was like a big mystery to them. You know, the same regime that gave up draft capital to move up one spot to take Mitch Trubisky when they could have stayed put and taken Patrick Mahomes. Remember that? I'm sure you do if you're a Bears fan. By the way... Stinks to be Trubisky today. He just signed with the Steelers, and what do they do? They go out in the first round, and they get the hometown kid, Kenny Pickett, who I'm still not that sold on, but I guess time will tell. But anyway, Ryan Pohl says don't reach when you're making draft picks, and I think a lot of people would tell you that. Chris Ballard, Colts general manager, has a pretty sound philosophy as well when it comes to making those decisions between drafting for need and drafting the best available player. That is that is the age-old question. You just got to make sure you're not passing a great player. You know, you don't want to pass a great player. So just to take the need. I've always got my thinking about that a bunch where, you know, Mars, we have this need, but we got this guy leveled up here. I mean, if there's a different level and you're taking, you're just going to take the better player. And if it's even, all right, then, then we'll take the need. I mean, I always go back to Reggie. I mean, I think they needed a corner here badly, 
I mean, like, it was bad. They needed a corner, but all of a sudden the corner went off the board and they ended up taking Reggie Wayne. I mean, and so, you know, you don't want to be, don't beat your head against the wall just to fill the need. Like I said, there's time. You have time and there's still good players on the market, so you let it work itself out. And, of course, he's talking about Reggie Wayne, who went on to have you know, a pretty good career. But, you know, not, not hard to believe that both Ballard and Poles came through the same Chiefs organization before landing in their current general manager roles because they just seem to have such sound philosophies. And we'll find out more about Ryan Poles because he hasn't even made a pick. But, again, he's got two early tonight in the second round. But both teams, the Colts and the Bears, um, in the market for wide receivers. The Athletic has a mock of how they think the second round is going to go tonight. They have the Bears taking Georgia wide receiver George Pickens at 39, and the Colts going with Western Michigan wide receiver Sky Moore at number 42. But uh, here's more from Chris Ballard on what he says is the toughest part about the transition for a college receiver going to the NFL. They get, in college, they get a, I mean, you can look at the stats, and there's 75, 80 guys that have caught 80 balls, you know, for 1,000 yards. But in our league, the coverage, the, the coverage is tighter. It's more physical. Um, they're getting, especially at the line of scrimmage, what you're seeing in college football, they get a lot of free releases that they don't get in our league. Um, and the, the access they have getting off the football, and then the tempo they play at. So they're playing at a, you know, these teams are running plays. We're watching tape, and you're watching 80, 90 plays on offense, and they're going every 20, 25 seconds. So they're, so they're getting some pretty simplistic looks defensively. Um, so I think – and that's, that's the hardest thing to see how they're going to make the transition to handle – you know, how are they going to handle press coverage? How are they going to handle cloud coverage? How are they going to adjust? I think it's one of the harder positions to really come in and, you know, make the adjustment. They have to be smart, um, and they've got to have a, a level of instincts to really be able to do it. But they can. We're seeing it now more and more. Kids are throwing – I mean, I think the change with, like, seven-on-seven seven football, um, the passing game is just – I don't want to say it's completely changed, but – Kids at a young age are out throwing and catching um, at a young age, all through junior high, high school, um, you know, into college. So it's a uh, it's a hard position to make the transition, but, you know, guys do it. And I mean, when you hear that, when you hear Chris Ballard talking about that, I just I think of Kevin Austin, you know, getting off the press, something he really struggled with at Notre Dame. And now it's not all his fault because, I mean, it's something pretty much all of Notre Dame's receivers have struggled with over the last few years and new wide receiver coach right now. So um, we'll see how much that improves now going forward. But Ryan Roberts from irishbreakdown.com and risendraft.com joined me earlier this week to talk draft stock for a few different Irish players, including Kevin Austin. The surprise one, I, I guess, to a degree, I thought Kevin Austin was firmly in third or fourth round conversation. I was told that a lot of, a lot of teams still have late round grades on him. Um, so he might not actually go in that fourth round range dependent upon, I mean, it only takes one team to really fall in love with a player. So right. it's always possible that he'll go a little higher after the combine performance that he had. And then he had another nice showing at pro day running routes, but NFL teams are still kind of doing their, their homework on him and the due diligence because the, I mean, to be very honest, the, the tape did not quite match 
what the athletic profile would suggest. So he's a guy that might not go as high as some people maybe would think at the moment just based upon his combine performance. And, that, you know, that's that's it. He had a great combine. Uh, but, you know, you put in that game film, and that's another thing. And then you start looking at some of those things that Chris Ballard was talking about. How does he do against press coverage? And that, again, major issue for, for both Austin and other Notre Dame receivers. And it's, you know, part of why I think he would have done well to stay for one more year. I understand he'd already been there for four years. He'd had some injury issues. He wanted to move on and, and get paid. It's tough, though. But, uh, you know, some early mocks had Austin going before Kyron Williams, but maybe Williams now ends up going first between the two of those guys. Here's what Robert says about Williams' current stop. Kyron Williams is a player that, I mean, last week when I talked to you, I, I think I mentioned, you know, I, I think fourth-round range is probably a good spot for him. I was told that the majority of the teams, a lot of teams, have third-round grades actually on Kyron huh. Williams. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to go in the third round. That just means that that's where they value him. And, you sure. know, obviously you're going to have the, you know, the, you know, the value of the running back position and how that goes into the evaluation. But another good thing to hear, you know, some teams have fourth-round grades on him, but he is well-liked across the league because he brings a baseline as a really good pass receiver, as a running back, and a good blocker. So, a guy that I think is going to play a lot of football in the next level, and I think that he has a chance to sneak into day two somewhere, somewhere in the third okay. round. Okay. So uh, if you're still up watching the draft later on tonight, maybe Kyron Williams ends up going there. Be curious to see if he makes it into the third round this evening. He's kind of the middle, what, about the uh, the fifth, I believe, uh, running back rated on most people's boards going into uh, this weekend's draft. Um what about you know James White? By the way, is is comp running back for the Patriots? Had an eighty-seven catch season a couple years ago. That's something that Kevin Austin or uh, Kyron Williams rather does really well. Catch the ball. He was a receiver in high school before he became a running back. Final thought on Jack Cohn, the uh, guy who transferred in for one season from Wisconsin to play for Notre Dame this season. Jack Cohn is, uh, I think, he's a safe draftable player. I'm told most most teams have mid round, mid to late round grades on him. There are some teams that obviously question the upside. You know, is he a starting quarterback long-term? Most likely not, so that might drop drop him down a little bit. But I, I would be very surprised at this point if Jack Cohn is not drafted um, this, okay. this weekend. So, I don't know. I You know, Ryan follows NFL draft, you know, closer than I do, these players and all this stuff. But this is such a weak quarterback class. And it just seems like the last couple of years there has been – more a surplus of quarterbacks that you know teams now there are still teams that need a quarterback you know like the Bears obviously still have to get their quarterback situation figured out is it Justin Fields or what but it, it just there just aren't as many spots it seems like right now and again you don't have any elite talent quarterbacks just one drafted in the first round last night we'll see where Malik Willis ends up going and some of these other guys but I'm just I'm 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 leaning off the fence for Jack Cohn in terms of being drafted. I'm leaning more toward free agent sign, but we'll see. We'll see tomorrow. He's not going to go tonight. We know that. If anything, it's going to be late round tomorrow. So we'll see what ends up happening with Jack Cohn. I'm going to take a timeout. When we come back, we'll talk uh, some Notre Dame football and uh, mix in some draft talk from uh, a night ago with Brian Driscoll from irishbreakdown.com. That is on the way. We're brought to you by Budweiser, the king of beers, Locally distributed by United Beverage Company of South Bend. Sports fans, this Bud's for you. 
Tim Growl State Farm Insurance. Save money on home and auto insurance with Tim. Serving both Indiana and Michigan. Call 574-232-9981. Barnabies of Mishawaka and Granger serving our community while serving Michiana's most favorite pizza since 1978. And the Food Bank of Northern Indiana. Hunger's a story we can end. Find out how at feedindiana.org. We'll take a time out. And when we come back, Brian Driscoll joins me for more football talk on Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. Budweiser's weekday sports beat rolls on on Sports Radio 960 AM WSBT. Brian Driscoll with me from IrishBreakdown.com, successfully finishing his dinner just before we get things mm-hmm. started tonight. Good call. Timed it up perfectly. That's right. That's right. Um, some uh, some unfortunate news that just came across Twitter from the Notre Dame football PR team. Uh, Their tweet says, Irish sophomore running back Logan Diggs had successful shoulder surgery April 29th, which was today, uh, after being injured in the blue-gold game. Surgery was completed by Dr. Brian Radigan to repair the labrum of his left Mm -hmm. shoulder. So so your initial thoughts on that, I guess, Brian, as we... Start things off on a little bit more somber note tonight. Yeah, yeah. I thought we were going to have some fun talking NFL draft, and this just out, came out. It, it's unfortunate for Logan. It, it, it is. You know, he's a kid that, that Notre Dame is, is expecting to to rely on this year. And this isn't a season-ending type of thing. You know, doing a little research beforehand, we didn't get word from Notre Dame how long he's going to be out. So keep that in mind. This is not coming from Notre Dame. Just doing my own research. Uh-huh. Uh, this is an injury that tends to take four to six months for you know healing and all those type of things which you know on the on the low end gets him back at the end of august which is right before the season and then the longer end is going to keep him out for a couple weeks and you know a a shoulder injury for a running back is never a good thing you know and that's the other part of it as well so uh, i I would imagine he's gonna he's gonna at least be out for a good chunk of fall camp if it's a normal tear if it was something like maybe sometimes it can be like minor and you can kind of get back quicker because it wasn't a total a total repair yeah that, that part we don't know. So that's why I wanted to make sure I specified this is a typical torn labrum time frame, not specifically to Logan Diggs because we haven't gotten word specifically how severe the injury was. Yeah. All right. So it, we will uh, we'll be waiting on that. We do know that uh, Jabron Payne, an incoming freshman, will be, uh, you know, will be here this summer and, and in training camp. So I uh, at least they have, you know, someone else coming in to kind of help, you know, fill some of that void because it was a bit of a thin running back room to begin with. And I think Payne was going to be the fifth, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If my, yeah. Off the top of my head. Yeah. So he would have been the fifth. So now ostensibly probably going through most of training camp, they're going to have, you know, four guys and a couple walk-ons. So, you know, well, this is why you want five running backs. Exactly. Right? We talked about this when they got Jabron Payne. It's like, look, four running backs, if everybody's healthy, you're fine. I mean, you're, you're good to go. Now you get to three. If you only have three, it's like, okay, should be okay. But then then you start getting into, like, you can talk yourself into, no, no, we'll be fine, which is what Notre Dame did in 2013 when they had four running backs. And then all of a sudden you go into the Georgia game and you've only got one healthy one in Tony Jones Jr. And, you know, that that that, that can happen. But this is exactly why you go out and get Jabron Payne. Because you, you think about it like, well, you know, you've already got Chris Tyree and he's got two years left, or technically three years left. you got Logan Diggs and Aldrich Estime. You've got Jadarian Price. Why do you need a fifth running back? This is why. This is why. Yep. Yep. Exactly. All right. So 
Again, Logan Diggs with uh, labrum surgery on his shoulder. So, uh, you know, timeline that, that you just kind of laid out somewhere around training camp. We'll see what that actually means and how quickly he's able to heal from that. Um, Kyle Hamilton, 14th to the Ravens last night. All this talk about where he's going to go. You know, ultimately he doesn't end up going into the top 10, but seems like a pretty good fit for Kyle Hamilton. What would you think? Well, you know, that's the one, it's kind of like falling in the draft has a positive and a negative effect, right? The negative is obvious. It's financial. You, yeah. don't, get, you don't get paid as much if you get drafted lower. The positive is, is a lot of times you, you fall, you tend to go to a better, better organization. And that's what happened here, you know, with the going to the Ravens, who, who had a bit of a rough year last year. But, you know, it's a solid organization. They're going to bounce back. They had some injuries and things like that. So you, you put him in here, and, and it's a first-class organization. He's got several former – he's got former teammates there, not several. He's got one. But then other people he knows, obviously, they have Ronnie Stanley on campus or on the on that football team. And, yep. and then last year they drafted Dalen Hayes. And they drafted Miles Boykin a few years ago, but he was cut this offseason. He's now with the Steelers. But, you know, I think it's a good organization. I think it's a system that, that should fit him well. They've got two good safeties already. They signed Marcus Williams this offseason to a big contract. They got Chuck Clark which I think puts him in a situation, honestly, Sean, that reminds me a lot of the one he walked into at Notre Dame. If you remember when he was a freshman at Notre Dame, as good as he was, they didn't need to play him as an every-down safety to sure. start off with. He got to rotate in with Jalen Elliott and Alohi Gilman, and they would use him sometimes as part of a three-man safety group. Right. I think you can use him as a second-level defender, You know that linebacker, not a linebacker, but a linebacker level, like maybe like a rover type, and he can present some very unique matchups. And you know, and then so in a lot of ways, I think it's good for the Ravens, and I think it's good for Kyle Hamilton. And obviously, the 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 bank account took a bit of a hit, but he was also reported to be one of the highest paid NIL kids in the country last year. And that's the other thing about NIL is like, you know, he's going to be all right. He's he's going to be yeah. okay. He still made himself some money, and he's going to get a chance to play for a first class organization and a a system that I think fits him pretty well. Yeah, and I saw something this afternoon about endorsement deals that he already has in place, I think, because of his mm -hmm. NIL and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So, yeah, that mm -hmm. definitely definitely helps. Um, you mentioned Miles Boykin, wide receiver at Notre Dame, um, you know, who tested through the roof, great 40 time and all that stuff. There was the viral video after he ran the great 40 time at the Combine a few years back, and he ends up getting drafted. Pro career never really took off with the Ravens. Uh, Kevin Austin, again, great 40 time and all that. I, I played a clip just a little bit ago about Chris Ballard, or from Chris Ballard, the Colts general manager, talking about one of the biggest transitions for college receivers to the NFL, you know, why it takes some guys longer. And he talked about the fact that basically the getting off the press you know that mm -hmm. that 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 is kind of the man maker i think you know for 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 taking that step and that's something that that kevin austin is you know that's how much do you see that holding him back as he tries to make that transition now i think it holds him back significantly i i think the if you're just watching tape it's a major problem yeah it's, it's why kevin at times looked like a day one day two pick and other times look like a guy that should probably not be drafted. I mean, that that's that's the, the the range of film that you saw from Kevin Austin this year. At times he looked like a kid that maybe could sneak into the first round, and at times they're like, this kid's awful. And completely got shut out by, by you know, Sauce Gardner completely dominated Kevin Austin. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think if you're a good scout, and and I know Chris Ballard and his crew is first class, and they're going to talk to people in their name. They're going to do a deeper dive, and what they're going to find out is this kid wasn't coached, and that's the thing. So you got to ask yourself. Some NFL teams are say, "Hey, look, this kid's raw. He hasn't been coached. Give me him, and I'll coach him up." But in the NFL, not every organization's like that. Some are like, "Look, this is the professional football. We shouldn't have to coach up how to get off right. the press." Yeah, you know what I mean. And so. With some teams, it's going to hurt them, and with other teams, they're going to say, "Hey, this is you can't teach six two, you can't teach two ten, you can't teach four four three, and a thirty eight inch vertical." And it just depends on on what kind of organization you have. But you know that that's going to slow him down. It's going to keep him from being to that that next level guy. And and I think that his athletic skill set is a little different from Miles. So I think he he should learn it a little bit easier if he puts in the work. Whereas Miles was a little bit of more long limbed. And I think it was a little harder for him to kind of have some of the quick twitchiness that you need to get off the press that a Chase Claypool has that Miles doesn't. I think Kevin is more similar to Chase Claypool as a receiver style-wise than he is to, to Miles Boykin, which should help him. Right. But again, he's he, it, 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 there's a lot of holes in his game technically. So it's just going to depend on our team's going to bank on the athletic talent that we can coach up. Or is it a team that's looking for more ready-to-made, ready-to-play product? Did you see anything in the blue gold game that you know would lead you to believe that in a short amount of time, Chancey Stuckey has you know kind of taken a step up compared to where they were before under the absolutely old coach? okay yeah absolutely like Braden Lindsay's a perfect example. There was four or five snaps where I'm like, eh, Braden, there, there you go again, right? Like you can't just the ball that he caught on the back shoulder. If you remember that early in the game, yeah, I do. Yeah, that was actually a terrible release. If you go back and look, he just kind of took a little half-hearted jab and then just released vertically, and Chance Tucker was right all over him. You know, it just the ball was so poorly thrown that only Braylon had a, Braden had a chance to catch it. Then there was other times where you're like, okay, there you go, you you sold the outside, you jabbed them inside, then you got outside or you leaned him outside, and then snuck inside, and then got back on top. There was one from Deion Colsey where, you know, the corner was playing him outside, and so he he kind of he stemmed him outside, got the guy to drift, and then ripped inside of him, got back vertical, broke inside. And on that particular play, if Ian Book throws the ball about a foot higher, it's a touchdown for Deion Colsey. So they, they showed me two things, Sean. One, they have definitely made improvement in a lot of the technical aspects, getting off the line, catching the football, top ends of their routes. And then the second thing they showed me is they're still very much a work in progress which I expected. I think you can make a big jump in 15 practices, but you're not completely fixing this whole thing in 15 practices. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, definitely a positive. Exactly. Positive. But it's still a lot of uh, a lot of room to go, you know, like when you, you talk sure. about getting into the offseason and training camp next year and all that kind of good stuff. Mm -hmm. Just the fact that you were able to see, you know, some of that in a oh, short yeah, You know time. me, Sean. I was looking for it. Sure you were. <laughs> sure you were. That's why I asked. <laughs> Brian Triscoll from Irish Breakdown. Dot com. Kenny Pickett ended up being the only quarterback drafted last night. Stayed home, going to the Steelers. I'm just not sold on Kenny Pickett. What do you think of him? I, I wouldn't have made the move, but I, I, I understand where the Steelers are coming from. Me personally, you know, I have concerns about how he didn't really become this guy until his fifth year. Exactly. That always is a little bit of a red flag for me. But, hey, some guys are late bloomers. You know, Ben Roethlisberger wasn't even a starting quarterback in high school until his senior year, and True. he wasn't even that good then. This is why he ended up at Miami of Ohio. So, you know, I, 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 I think he throws a good ball. I don't think he's got, like, a big arm. You know, I don't think he's a guy that I look at and say, you know, hey, he's a, a, a great, great athlete. He's a good athlete. He's a gamer and all that kind of stuff. He's a guy that if you'd have taken him in the third round, I'd have said, hey, you know what? That's a really nice pick. You know, maybe this guy will have a chance down the road. But 
you know, this is a young man that in the the, th the previous years as a, as a starting quarterback through 12, 13, and 13 touchdowns. And then all of a sudden he comes out this year in an NFL system and throws 42 touchdowns. And it's just like, okay, this is kind of what you get into is do, do you believe the one year against, let's be honest, pretty mediocre competition exactly or do you look at the bigger picture of this whole thing and and that that's where i come from is I, I think he had a great year but he's not a guy that i look at and say hey i i this guy who boy you know he's a surefire thing i didn't give a first round grade to any of the quarterbacks to be completely honest with you yeah i i said i think you and i are on the exact same page with pickett and the whole quarterback class i wouldn't mm -hmm. have taken any of them in the first round uh, and and just everything that you said about Pickett, the fact that he was there for four years. And Five. It, yeah, well, yeah. Five. Well, I was getting yeah. ready to say, for four years, and then in the fifth year, all right. this blossoming, and as you said, against a subpar ACC that everybody talked about. Right, So. right. Yeah. yeah it's, there's really only one quarterback I would have taken a chance on in the first round, and it's Desmond Ritter. That's the only one I would have taken a chance on because I think of all the quarterbacks, he's the guy that has the most upside to me. And, and it, you know, he's, his accuracy is an issue, but he's big, he's strong, he's got a big arm and the thing. And even though I don't love his accuracy, the thing I like about Desmond Ritter is the last year, this past season especially, he showed me in the Notre Dame game, even in the, in the playoff game on a, on a couple throws, he showed me uh, in, the, in the conference championship game, he's, he's, he's a gamer. In the big moments, he's going to battle. I thought he he didn't play great against Notre Dame. The pass rush got to him several times, but when he needed to make a big throw, he made some big time throws. He really impressed me with that. He's the only guy that I would have taken a flyer on, but honestly, I would probably not have taken any of them in the first round. Yeah, I agree. Uh, we all love Kyron Williams, but the, you know all this talk about you know is he going to make it? Is he not? And you know the, where he's going to get drafted and the whole thing. What gives you the most confidence that Kyron Williams is going to stick in the NFL? Well, number there's two things. Number one is I think his game fits the NFL really well. You know, he, he's a guy that, that can catch the football. He's a really good pass blocker. He's a guy that can run the football. He's, he plays with some toughness. You know, he's not an every down bell cow in the NFL, but there's not a lot of teams that are looking for that. Yeah. You know, I think his pass game success, the fact that he can run routes beyond the line of scrimmage, he's not just like a swing check down guy. He can – he can outrun people and because of his route running and he can catch the football. He's got good ball skills and his pass blocking or why. The other thing, too, is, is he's going to work. I mean, that's the thing about Kyron is he's going to – coaches are going to love him. He's not going to be this prima donna kid that you got to talk into working out and staying out of trouble and doing all that kind of stuff. The one thing about Kyron, whether you like his game, don't like his game, think it projects, don't think it projects, the one thing I think we should all be able to agree on when we analyze Kyron Williams, this kid is going to work hard. And he's going to be hungry because he was that way at Notre Dame. Yeah, and and that's those are the two things that give me hope that that he's going to have a chance to to have a, a fruitful and long Notre Dame or NFL career. You know, as a James White type of guy, maybe not yeah. even an every down back, but you know, a Kevin Falk type. But Kevin Falk played a long time in the NFL, and I don't think he's ever a number one back. And I could see Kyron being that kind of guy. Yep, I agree. Uh, Osita Ekwanu's twin brother Ikum, who went to mm -hmm. NC State, drafted six by the Panthers last night did did Notre Dame ever had a have a shot at him you know do you remember like they didn't can, really recruit him really and, and and honestly neither did anybody other any other big time programs he just wasn't that kind of player huh. in high school I mean you know they played at the same high school he was a three-star kid he was like I think like ranked in the 600s 700s in the country Clemson didn't push for him Notre Dame didn't push for him Bam Ohio State none of those schools came and pushed for him that's how he ended up in NC State so 
He's just one of those kids that was a late developer. You know, I mean, Zion Way- Zion Johnson, I say Zion Williamson. <laughs> Zion Johnson, the kid that went to BC, he started his career at Davidson. Crazy. You know, he was – I coached – I played against Davidson in college. <laughs> and I was at a D3 school, you know. Uh, so, got, some guys are just late bloomers. You know, it just, it's just – it happens sometimes. And he was one of those guys. When you know, I went back and watched his film. And it's like when Jesse Bates came out of Fort Wayne. You know, people are like, how did Notre Dame miss him? I'm like, they didn't miss him. He just wasn't that good coming yeah. out of high school. Like, he, it he happens sometimes. later. Yeah. It does. Like, Will Fuller is a senior. He went to the opening as in between before his senior year, the opening out in Oregon. If you remember, it's that big event uh-huh. where right. all the best high school players go. And I remember going a few years ago, and they were re- repeating 40 times of all the former guys that had been there, and they repeated Will Fuller's. And if I remember correctly, it was like in the mid, it was in the mid four fives. Like, so he wasn't that guy coming out of high school. He got faster when he got to Notre Dame. That happens sometimes. And yeah. I think that's what happened with with uh, Osita's brother. I, 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 It's not one – look, it would be easy for me because I was Jeff, a Jeff Quinn year. If I wanted to, like, take shots at Jeff Quinn or <laughs> sure. whatever, I go, oh, you know. But I don't fault Jeff Quinn because if I didn't say it was a miss at the time, then I can't look back and tell you that it was a miss at the time. Yeah. We all knew – we are, we were all aware of him. We all knew he had a twin brother, and he just wasn't a guy that, that – was a Notre Dame caliber player then. He yeah. certainly is now. That's, I mean, just everything that you outlined there, different guys develop at different rates, right. you know, which is also why you see group of five and division two and FCS guys, you know, ending up with NFL careers as yeah, well. Think so. about it. Two, two offensive linemen drafted in the top 20 last night were guys that be, went to FCS schools. One of them eventually transferred to Boston College. The other one spent his whole career at Northern Iowa. Yeah. And it, it happens. Yep. Brian Driscoll, irishbreakdown.com. Have a great weekend, and I will talk to you Monday, okay? Thanks for having me on. Enjoy the draft. Absolutely. You too. Brian Driscoll, irishbreakdown.com. We'll take a timeout when we come back. Jim Irizarry is going to join me. He has got his five sports wagers for you for the weekend. That is coming up next on Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. This is the My Five Question of the Day. Can you dig it? On Sports Radio 960 AM, WSBT. Jim Irizarry in for his five sports wagering picks for the weekend. Are any of them draft-related, Jim Irizarry? How about that? My first one is... Hey! Who knew? Hey! (laughs) Uh, Chicago Bears, exact position of the first player selected. Okay. Wide receiver and offensive lineman are both at plus 250. Defensive back, uh, plus 300. Defensive lineman slash edge, uh, plus 425. One more of these, you know, the, you know, like I, like I said, Bears don't draft their first pick is tonight. Uh, the wide receiver core right now consists of Darnell Mooney, uh, Equinemius St. Brown, Byron Pringle, Daz Newsom, and some guys who are probably like, the wide receiver threes in the USFL. <laughs> right. They have so, torn the roster down already. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. If, if if you're looking at the Bears wide receiver room, it is down to the studs. Uh, even if the Bears trade their pick, it's likely going to be for a wide receiver. So I like that plus 250 on the wide receiver. Yep. That sounds like a good one to me. All right. So uh, starting with the Bears and the wide receiver, what's your next bet? Uh, NHL tonight. Last 
last uh, night for the NHL regular season, by the way. Oh. Boston at Toronto, a nice uh, original six matchup there, too. Boston could still move up to third place in the Atlantic with a win. Tampa Bay uh, loses at the Islanders. That kind of sets the table for that. I'd imagine the uh, the Bruins probably going to try and do that because then they face the Leafs in the playoffs instead of Carolina. Toronto is resting Austin Matthews, John Tavares, and Mitch Marner, which means a lot of points on the bench, as well as their top goalie. So I like Boston, just straight up. If uh, if you got to play a puck line, Toronto plus one and a half. Okay. All right, so we've got an NFL draft bet. We've got an NHL bet. What's your number three wager tonight? Uh, one of the baseball games, Minnesota at Tampa Bay. Rays have won uh, four of their last five, but Twins have won their last seven, and they're taking that on a road trip. I just I just like the way this one feels. Everything tastes better. Everything feels better. <laughs> Everyone on the trip is booming with confidence. They've got their best starter on the mound in, uh-huh. Dylan, in uh, Dylan Bundy. They've won all three of his starts. Uh, so far this season, he's only allowed one run and one walk. That's insane. Uh, I'm on the Twins to win. Okay. Plus, uh, plus 110 there. Twins to win. Very catchy phrase there. White Sox fans probably won't like that, but uh, it's a good sounding wager there. Okay, what's next? Uh, Cubs at Milwaukee. Nice uh, little battle right there in the NL Central. Relatively cheap price on the Brewers at home as well at minus 145, uh, presumably because the Cubs are starting their best pitcher in Kyle Hendricks, so could get an upset, but he's historically much worse on the road anyway. His uh, his one-away start this year was god-awful. <laughs> uh, Chicago also used one of its most effective relievers in uh, Scott Efros in Thursday night's loss in Atlanta for two innings, so he's not going to be available. Okay. Milwaukee's Adrian Hauser had a uh, 281 ERA at home last year. Very good in his uh, lone start there so far in uh, 2022. I like the Brewers straight up at uh, minus 145. Okay. Um, everything is sounding pretty good. So far, I might have to make a parlay out of this. Uh, what's uh, right. what's your top wager for the weekend? Then? Uh, the remaining game in the NBA playoffs in the uh, in the first round: Memphis at Minnesota at nine o'clock tonight. This hasn't been an easy one for the Grizzlies. They only no. need one more win, but uh, they've had to erase significant deficits in games to get there. Yep, uh, they've got Stephen Adams out because of COVID, but he's barely played since game one anyway, so that's not really too much. Uh, Grizzlies are the better team. No Timberwolves lead seems to be safe anymore, or ever really was this season. <laughs> uh, so I think the Grizzlies uh, finally put them away with a win tonight and uh, and move on. It's been an exciting series, though. That's, I guess, it all you can been, ask for. That's been yep. really fun to watch. Entertaining television, that's for sure. All right. Jim Irizarry with his top five sports wagers for the weekend. We'll take a timeout. Got a Sports Center update coming up next. Thanks as always, Jim. Have a good weekend. Enjoy the rest of the draft. You do the same. All right. Sounds good. Budweiser's weekday sports beat continues next on Sports Radio 960 WSBT. You're listening to Budweiser's weekday sports beat with Sean Styers on Sports Radio 960 AM WSBT. Rapid Fire starts now on Sports Radio 960 AM WSBT. And now your host, Sean Styers. Along with Bobby Hensley, Sean Styers, it's Rapid Fire on Budweiser's weekday sports beat on this Friday as we get ready 
for the weekend. Well, uh, I guess I found out last night, Bobby, that you're really not that into the NFL draft, which kind of took me, uh, you know, kind of caught me off guard, took me by surprise a little bit. How much over under 30 minutes of the draft that you ended up watching last night? Oh, you could have done 30 seconds. It's under. <laughs> uh, I don't, like, for one, I just think, I get that it's like all the pageantry of seeing who gets picked and where they go and standing up on a stage with their jersey. I don't care. That's not football to me. I want to see how they play in the games. Like, all of this stuff to me is just extra, like I said, pageantry, I guess. I don't really care about it. Um, like, year to year, I don't remember who got drafted where necessarily. So, yeah. I would rather just not watch it and enjoy my evening. And I can read the results. And, oh, that's cool. My team took so-and-so, but I, I don't need to watch it. I, I guess, you know, because we talked about the fact that you don't watch it that much last night and uh, uh, you knew that you were coming on tonight, I thought maybe <laughs> you might actually <laughs> pay a little bit, you know, longer attention. I guess, you know, it, but like, it, it's not like we don't find out the results, you know, right away if we want to find them. You can go to ESPN.com or whatever webs, you know, NFL.com, any of those websites and, you know, find out what the picks were. There were some interesting trades that were made last night. Um, yeah, I watched. It, it's funny because I I got home and I DV, you know, I, I set record on it and I was basically watching, you know, just to find out where Kyle Hamilton was going to go, one, uh, you know, and then two, you know, stuck around after that to to, uh, to see what the Cowboys ended up doing at 24 if they were going to trade up. That never happened. Wasn't overly excited with their pick. And you, you know, you, you're a Dolphins fan. I, I don't know how much that affects it. Like, would you have watched more if, if the Dolphins actually had a first-round pick last night? Yeah, I absolutely would. And I think that's part of it, too, is this particular draft, it's just not um, attractive television to me. Yeah. You know, you look at the 98 draft with, like, you know, all the quarterbacks that were key and, like, Randy Moss going. And that that draft, I you know, I remember watching and enjoying it. But this one, there's just not a lot of marquee guys, I don't feel like. Yeah, I've pretty much said all along, because of the fact that it lacked marquee players and quarterbacks and all that kind of stuff, that it was a bit lackluster. So, uh, what I started to say is I div- you know so I set record on the DVR um I watched an episode of Severance on uh on Apple Plus Apple yeah, yeah. Have, have you seen that by any chance I've watched a little bit of it yeah the first two episodes I think I've watched yeah it um so I watched an episode of Severance I went back to the DVR forwarded through some commercials you know kind of got caught up then a friend ended up calling we ended up talking for a long time and then by that point, it, it was, you know, later in the draft. So I stuck around and watched the Cowboys pick, went eh, and then watched the last two episodes of Severance. I'll say this, the, the, the Severance thing, first few episodes to me, really slow. Like, I really struggled just to get through them. And then some people who had watched the whole thing said, stick with it, stick with it. It took about half the season, which is about four and a half, five hours for to me to really get interesting but there was definitely a payoff. I ended up, and, and I didn't even realize it at the time. I thought I had one more episode to go after I, 
ended up watching a, a total of three episodes last night. I thought I still had the finale. I watched the finale, and it, you know there was there was definitely some bang to it. There were some twists in there. So, if you're uh, questioning whether to stick with it, stick with it. So. Well, it's funny because I mean that's how dry we are for content right now. Is that we're talking <laughs> about preference on Apple TV? That's right. Um, but no, I I did. I watched the first two episodes and the second one especially. I was like, I'm just losing it. I just yeah. starting to get sleepy and. I haven't had anybody tell me to stick with it either. Yeah, the uh, the story, it really takes some time to get going. I told this to my wife. It's like, you know, I'd watched like two or three episodes, and I'm like, there's been no plot advancement. You know, it's like there's just kind of plotting around, and but stick with it. That's all I can say is it really gets good like the last four or five episodes. So, all right, let's, let's go ahead. Is it better than winning time? Oh, no way. No way. I'd, I'd still go with winning time. We'll get to winning time here in a minute. We've got an update on that. But fill in the blank. Cal Hamilton going to the Ravens with the 14th pick is blank. About, I mean, I guess the word is expected. I think that's about where you expected him to go. We've, we're both thinking between 10 and 15. He's at a position that's kind of a weird one to draft. Yeah. But he's so talented that, it, you know, you, you can't pass on him forever. And um, I think that's a, a steal for the Ravens. I do, too. I, I think it's as good a, a place for him to go as any. I mean, it's an organization that has been, you know, essentially built on defense forever, no matter who the head coach is. But, it, you know, it's so it's like it's known for its defense. You've got iconic players like Ray Lewis and Ed Reed. And Ed Reed, obviously, is safety who played there. So, you know, a great organization there in Baltimore built on its defense Cal Hamilton gets to go there now Wink Martindale pretty good defensive coordinator so I, I think it's a good situation and I said this earlier I'm just ecstatic you know even though he's not a Dallas Cowboy I'm just ecstatic that he did not end up in the NFC East on one of those other teams because they all had picks you know in that range that, that you know that we were talking about from first through the middle of the draft and he didn't end up with any of them. You know, the Giants had two picks in that range. Washington actually ended up trading down. Um, and, then, you know, there were some other moves that were made. The Eagles made a couple of moves. You know, they made a trade last night as well as some wide receivers got swapped around. So, I, yeah, I think it's a good situation for Kyle Hamilton and, and an opportunity now for him to, you know, to kind of go out and, and prove that he was worth the pick. 14th is nothing to sneeze at. So, you know, I don't, I don't think you can say that he really – fell but 14th middle of the draft highest picked defensive player for Notre Dame since Bryant Young in 1994 and Bryant Young's going to the Hall of Fame so and that was the infamous uh Colts draft that's right the one that we talked about last night with Bill Tobin and who the hell is Mel Kiper Jr. well and that draft in general there was three Notre Dame uh Jeff Burris was taken as well in that round yeah in the first round that year there was a lot of Notre Dame presence in that first round. That yeah, there year. was. I mean, that was that was really, you're talking about that 93-94, the last great Lou Holtz Notre Dame teams and really, you know, the last really good Notre Dame teams until these last few years that we've seen. So you can see why there'd be so much talent picked that high. It's just wild to me that, you know, it's, the game has changed so much. Like, can you imagine Jeff Burris taking off a game because he knows he has a good draft stock. Does it really matter? <laughs> I know. No kidding. Yeah, just everything is so different now compared to then. But it was almost 30 years ago at this point. 
So I know. It's just rough to see. I, I don't enjoy the fact of players maybe sitting out because they know they have high draft stock and why risk it. Well, you still like you're ruining the college game by doing that. Oh, so now we're now we've got to save the college game by by making these guys go out there and play. I, I wonder if Jalen Smith, you know, if, if he would still stick with the whole fact that he didn't regret playing in the Fiesta Bowl because I think his career is pretty much over now, you know, and it's the result of that. Yeah, but he had so. a longer career than people realize. I, I agree with you in the bowl game, but during the seasons, what I'm talking about. Gotcha, gotcha. Ah. I gotcha. All right, over under two and a half more Notre Dame players will be drafted this weekend. I, I'm thinking under. He's saying more, so that would be three additional. Correct. Yeah, I'm going to go under. Kyron Williams and Kevin Austin Jr., I think, are pretty much locks. So that's why the two and a half. Because then the other two, with the most realistic chance, Jack Cohn and Myron Tongavaloa Amosa, and those guys are both long shots. I wonder, I wonder if Cohn gets drafted – just because this is such a bad quarterback class and, you know, maybe some teams are looking for some depth at quarterback out there. I don't know. I, I think he ends up being a free agent sign, and I think Tangavaloa Mosa as well because he's too much of a tweener. You know, they moved him out to play defensive end because he's only 270 pounds. He couldn't keep weight on, uh, you know, so they move him out, and he's just not quite twitchy enough to go out there and play defensive end. I don't think so. He's just a classic tweener. You know, he needs more milkshakes and pizzas and burgers and stuff like that to keep some pounds on him. So uh, I, I'm going to go under as well. I, I, I'm going to go with Williams and with Austin, but I just I just don't know. I think Cone is the most realistic opportunity. I just don't know, though. I, like, what do you think? Do you think that the, you know, as bad as the quarterback class is overall, do you think that gives him any more opportunity? I almost wonder if that gives him less of an opportunity because, like you said, you can sign him as a free agent. Yeah. There's other other quarterbacks out there that you are going to be free agents or, or you can trade for without giving up anything. So I wonder if that kind of hurts him that it's so weak of a draft. Cause it's like, well, you might be the ninth best quarterback, but that in a weak draft, that's not good. Yeah. So I think that he's. I think it hurts him. Yeah, I do too. I, I kind of tend to think that way as well. All right, what are two teams that you think could be a good fit for Kyron Williams? See, I don't know. I think any of these teams, I think the Chiefs should be a great spot for mm, him. Interesting. Because they know how to use speed. They know how to use athleticism. They, you know, but he doesn't have the Kyrie speed. Hill. You know, that's He didn't run the good 40 time. He doesn't have the speed that they're looking for, I don't think. so. But the 40 time is a little bit different, I think. Mm -hmm. I. I still think the Chiefs know how to get talent out of the skill positions on offense. I, I think agree they, with, that. with Mahomes, especially, you get so much movement and you can do so many things. Yeah, I think his skill set definitely is in line with what the Chiefs are looking for from the running backs. I, you know, I, I think that is is certain. You know, so, but again, like, does does the lack of speed hold him back because he didn't have the good? 40 time. My two teams are the Patriots, and maybe it's just because we talked earlier this week uh, with one of the draft guys about the fact that James White is a good comp for Kyron Williams. Kyron Williams, great pass catching ability. I could see him easily, you know, kind of fitting in there in New England. And I think the New Orleans Saints as well, even though you don't have Sean Payton anymore, they've been, 
you know, they've needed some running back depth behind Kamara. They had Tony Jones Jr. there last year. He really didn't do a whole lot. And I, I just, th- I, I think that Kyron Williams, I could see him wearing a Saints uniform or a Patriots uniform. Now, there are others as well, but th- those are two that kind of stood out for me. That means a crapshoot once you get into the second round, too, because now every team's passed on you, so every team has a shot at you. Right, right. But I think you're right about the Saints. That's an interesting place because Kamara, part of his is that he can catch the ball out of the backfield. Yeah. And the depth behind him has been weak, and, and even quarterback play last year was weak for him. Yeah. I mean, they were scratching and clawing just trying to get a quarterback because uh, Jameis was out, and they added Trevor Simeon, who was – bad Ian Book got a shot that didn't go so good so I that's an interesting place for him to go and he actually have some playing time there I think I think so too I think he could easily get some playing time splitting some time potentially behind uh Camara so yeah that would be a really interesting place for him now personally I've said this before like I'd still like to see him wearing a star on his helmet because uh you know there's going to be some decisions they're going to have to make with both Zeke Elliott and Tony Pollard here after this season, but you know they might not go after a running back this year. But I mean, a third running back having back there on kickoff returns, I would love to see that. But that would probably be a little bit deeper in the draft based on their needs. All right, we talked last week about the uh, the Jerry West stuff with the Winning Time uh, show on HBO, the uh, the TV show on HBO, the series about the Los Angeles Lakers and their rise in the 1980s. Uh, Jerry West, the Lakers great, has been upset about his portrayal, his depiction on the show, even going so far as, you know, filing an injunction. He's quoted this week saying he would fight it all the way to the Supreme Court. All this stuff. And, you know, you've got all these people like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar coming out and saying, well, I know that Jerry West never broke a golf club. You know, he would never do something like that. No one's ever seen him do something like that. Well, HBO actually released a statement this week, a rebuttal, you know, in response to all this uproar that's going on with Jerry West. And they based this series one on the book by Jeff Perlman, the author who wrote a book about this, but they also for their source material went and you know, all you've got all these different Lakers and all these different people who have written autobiographies. Well, guess what? Jerry West has an autobiography titled, West by West, my charmed, tormented life, and he brings up his li- his uh, long battle with depression, something that is depicted in the show. On page sixty eight, here's a quote that West writes in his own autobiography: "Quote, I have broken a lot of clubs in my life on purpose. There was a place not far from Bel Air Country Club that repaired them." And I would often put a broken club or two in front of their door early in the morning, well before they opened, with no note. No note was necessary because they knew the clubs were mine. I have even thrown some clubs over the fence of Bel Air. If you don't believe me, ask Pat Pat Riley. He witnessed it. End quote. So, you know, I don't know that this necessarily completely answers things, but to me, Bobby... It's not that, like, if you listen to this, because, again, he's saying he didn't have anger management issues, but he's talking in his own book about breaking golf clubs over his leg and, and throwing golf clubs, basically, which is depicted in this show. To me, it's like, it's not that Jerry West wasn't really like this. He just doesn't like the fact that it's actually being shown on TV for everybody to see. Yeah, well, I said 
um, I don't know if it was yesterday or whatever, I was talking to you. The way he's fighting this almost makes him look like the aggressive, angry guy that they're depicting. Yeah. So you're looking at a guy that, that he's going to go all the way to the Supreme Court and blah, blah, blah. Like, okay, if you're going to say all those things and get that grumpy about it, that's kind of the character they're depicting. And if you're going to – I think it is one thing. I think when he wrote it, it was for sympathy. And when it's depicted on television, it almost makes him look like a jerk. And he doesn't like that. He'd rather be- – You kind of cut out there. Are you still there? Yeah. You, you – you 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 were saying something about he'd rather something. He'd rather be depicted as a sympathetic character in his book, but not actually like on television now. When it comes when you see it, when you read it, you feel bad for the guy. Right. When you see it now, all of a sudden he looks like a jerk. Yeah, it it comes off different because you know it's like looking in the mirror, I guess. And you know, and honestly, it just sounds like the whole. Me thinks he doth protest too much, you know? It's like that's that's the way it's kind of coming out now. I just I don't think he likes it because it's probably part of himself that maybe he's worked a long time to try to correct. May you know, maybe we're, you know, kind of supposing some things and he just doesn't like that part of himself and he doesn't like the fact that he has to look at it on TV. So, you know, again, there are a lot of things that they have come out and you know, one of the things that HBO also said in in their response that they issued this week, the 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 mantra that we always say, this is not a documentary, and that's what they said. You know, this is not a documentary. This is based on what happened. It is a dramatic reenactment, mean, which means that there are going to be some embellishments along the way, which, by the way, happens in 99.9% of everything you see in Hollywood that's based on a true story. You know, I brought out other examples like, remember the Titans, you know, remember uh, the blind side, Sandra Bullock won an Academy Award, you know, Michael Orr, the NFL offensive lineman, you know, he came out right after that and was talking about all the things that weren't completely accurate. So it, it happens all the time. It's just a matter of, it just seems like Jerry West is is pushing this to the nth degree. And, uh, you know, I, I agree with, with your take and I know. I, I think it's time for him to move on because all he's doing, I think, is uh, is driving. <laughs> you know, for, I think as far as HBO is concerned, any publicity is good publicity, and they're getting a lot of good publicity out of all this Jerry West, you know, stink that he's raising. Like I say, just keeps reinforcing that maybe he is that guy. That yeah. Ha- maybe he's been working at those issues, but he's still that guy. Bobby Hensley, Sean Stiers, Rapid Fire, Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. We're going to take a timeout. It's College World Series reunion weekend for the 2002 Notre Dame baseball team. We'll talk to one of the stars of that team, Steve Stanley, coming up next on Budweiser's Weekday Sports Beat. 3-2, Rice on top of Notre Dame with two outs and nobody on at the bottom of the ninth. Another payoff to Stanley. This one, getting back to right center field. Turn on the Jets, Steve Stanley. Back to the wall it goes. Stanley, rounding second, heading for third. Steve Stanley will slide in safely with a one-out triple. And Notre Dame has the tying run at third base as Steve Stanley gives Paul Maneri a high five as he gets in there. Well, that is arguably the most famous triple in the history of Notre Dame baseball. Maybe the second most famous hit I don't know in the in the history of Notre Dame baseball and the guy who hit it Steve Stanley All-American in 2002 a captain on Notre Dame's 2002 College World Series team celebrating its 20th anniversary this year is 
with us right now. How we doing, Mr. Stanley? Sean, it's great talking to you, man. Uh, just hearing that and uh, just those memories coming back, they flood back. It's exciting to, uh, to think about that time. When you think about that triple, that College World Series triple, that, of course, was part of the comeback win against Rice. You tripled with one out. You're down by a run. Steve Solman's the next batter. He singles you home. And then, of course, Brian Stavisky with the walk-off home run. But uh, are, are there any moments from your career? Like, is that the top moment of your career at Notre Dame? Um, I would say that's definitely the top moment. And I, what I would also say is there were quite a few that come pretty close. You know, yeah. the, uh, the series when I was um, a sophomore at Mississippi State, um, you know, the, the Super Regional at uh, Florida State, Right, uh, winning the Big e Big East championship, uh, and you know, Steve Solman uh, scoring that run, and then Stavisky getting a huge hit there. I mean, there were there was a lot of big moments for us, um, and, and but that was definitely on the top. Yeah. Well, and I I think that the the Big East championship, when you end up going to Omaha at the end of the season, I mean that it gets lost in the shuffle a little bit because of some of the moments that you mentioned, but. You know, I had your coach, Paul Maneri, of course, on a couple of weeks ago, and we've talked about it before. That was something new for that team as well, just winning a Big East championship, especially against Rutgers. You know, that was a team that, that you guys just couldn't quite push through. And, and so just how big was that moment at the time? Was that probably the biggest thing that had ever happened, just, just winning that Big East championship? It was. And, you know, a lot of the things that people don't remember, number one is, that's that automatic seed to get into the 64-team tournament, just right. like the NCAA tournament in basketball. If we don't win that tournament, I don't know if we get into the regional. And the reason for that was that we had such a poor start to the season. Obviously, we, we strung a huge amount of wins together late. But if we don't win that tournament, there's nothing to say because we were a northern team. And, uh, you know, it wasn't like we played in the SEC conference where – uh, you know, they would lot, let a lot of teams in. Who knows if we get in or not? And then I don't seem to remember if other teams from the Big East got in that year, maybe one or two other teams. But it was huge that we won because if we don't win that, who knows if we actually get into the regional to have a chance to go to the World Series. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, you ended up hosting that regional as a two-seed. And I don't know that that happens very much anymore. The, the, you know, the tournament has evolved a lot over the years. But even that was – a little bit unique because it comes down to facilities and who puts in the bid and the guarantees and all those different things. But you got right. to, you got to host that regional as the number two seed. South Alabama was the number one seed. So they came up here. And of course your second round 25 to one lopsided win over South Alabama was probably the <laughs> highlight of that weekend, but you guys went three and zero that weekend as well. And you had two other games against Ohio state, Ohio state. You scored eight runs and nine runs against Ohio State in those two other games, that had to be one of the better three-game stretches just offensively that, that you guys have had, I would imagine. Well, it was huge, and I, a lot of people probably don't remember this, but Luis Gonzalez and Craig Council had a bet because <laughs> Luis right. Gonzalez went to South Alabama, and so he had to wear Council's Notre Dame jersey You know, uh, the next day. It was a huge win for us against South Alabama, but then also, you know, me being a Columbus kid and, 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 and really, you know, um, 
Notre Dame, in, in, in particular, Coach Mary, went out of their way to make me feel special uh, when I was recruited. And Ohio State, in my backyard, you know, I was an underdog type of guy, not a big guy. And right. so I don't blame them for not recruiting me hard. But it was an even bigger win for me because my hometown team came up to play us. And then to win two games like that, um, it was definitely, definitely huge for me. Well, and I'm trying to remember, I think at that point, the was the draft the next week? Do you remember? Yeah, it, it was. I do remember because I'll tell you what, Sean, what happened was we were practicing getting ready to go down to Tallahassee. Okay. And Coach Maneri specifically for the juniors and seniors on the team, it was tough to keep their emotions in check because we all knew the draft was that day. And so all of us were practicing and he, he, he purposefully had practice during the draft. So you couldn't listen to it. <laughs> now it's a big, you know, now it's a big deal. And you know, it's, it's all over the airwaves and uh -huh. stuff. But back then it was something where the coaches would listen and maybe guys would listen on the internet, but he specifically had practice that day so that we could not listen to it. And uh, during practice, I remember him calling me in from center field. I believe it was a Thursday, maybe, maybe a Wednesday. And he called me in and he said, man, the, the A's just drafted you in the second round. And, man, that was a special day. I know? bet it was. I bet it was. And, of course, your teammate Brian Stavisky also drafted by the A's. And as fate would have it, a guy from those Buckeyes, Nick Swisher was also drafted by yeah. the A's. So that, that turned out to be, you know, kind of a unique weekend with all of you guys playing against each other there at X Stadium. Right it, it, was, the it was special. It, yeah, it was really special. And, and, you know, I got to know Nick even a lot better, obviously, once we were in the A's organization. And Brian and I, our, our uh, relationship developed as well, you know, continuing to get the chance to play with him. But, um, you know, it was really – and Swish obviously being a guy from the Columbus area – and he went to middle school here, and then he was from Parkersburg. His father was from Parkersburg, West Virginia. Right. So, um, you know, just a lot of ties there, and and it was it was a special time. And I remember talking at the uh, the banquet on Friday, uh, maybe it was Thursday, the day before the the regional, and I was talking to Joey Wilkins, who's one of the guys that played on the Ohio State team that I'd played uh, with when I was in youth baseball. And I said, man, oh, does wow. anybody on your team think that? Yeah, does anybody? <laughs> on your team think they're going to get drafted? And he said, yeah, I think Swish is going to go in the first round. I said, are you kidding me? Wow, really? I mean, we, it was just no, you know, at the time, you just don't know who's going to go where. So, yeah. and it's sure, you know, that, that ended up happening. So. And you talk about, again, just how different things are now, just the way, you know, prospects are talked about and everything else right now compared to, to the ancient days of, of 20 years ago in 2002. <laughs> yeah. It does. It feels like that. Coach Mary and I talk all the time, Sean, and we talk about the fact that, you know, it was big back then because I remember even as a kid growing up in the 80s and 90s to watch the World Series was a big deal, even for me when I was 9, 10 years old. Right. And now it's just become a whole nother animal. It's, it's huge. You know, you've got – college baseball games are on every day. I mean, I'm, you know, ESPN plus and all these different, uh, you know, avenues to watch games. Yeah. And, and, you know, you never used to be able to, you know, if you, if you watched and saw a super regional game, it was a big deal. Now it's, it's everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Steve Stanley's with us all American in 2002 drafted by the Oakland A's from Notre Dame's 2002 college world series team, which is celebrating its 20th anniversary of course, this year so as we kind of keep looking back on that season 
you win the regional at home. You go to uh, the super regional, and for your reward, you get the number one team in the country, of course, Florida State, 25-game winning streak and and all that. And, again, talking to Paul a couple of weeks ago, you know, so much of, of his coaching was not just fundamental coaching, but it was about motivation and emotion and, you know, all these different things. Do you remember his message to you guys going into that weekend? Yes, and it hadn't changed from the day that I walked on campus. This guy was the same coach Maneri. He was he believed in his players. He believed in the program. He believed in the things that he taught and, and they all came to fruition. And he would always say, you know, that weekend, you're playing not only for yourselves, but you're playing for all the guys that have come ahead of you that have gotten us to this point. You know, you think about guys like Aaron Heilman and Brand Us and Alec Porzell and all these guys that came ahead uh, that I played with. And then even before that, um, you know, there was so much great tradition at Notre Dame, and they had been so close. So he preached that to us, but his, you know, none of his philosophy was the same from day one. And really, when we walked in there, we never felt like underdogs. You know, we always felt like, man, we can play with these guys. And uh, that was instilled by Coach Maneri from day one. And, and uh, don't let anybody tell you that we didn't believe or, you know, think that we belonged down there because we really did, and that was from him. Oh, I know. And, I mean, everyone, you could tell by, by the way you guys carried yourselves all weekend. And like he said, if there hadn't been a, a rain out in, in day two, you know, what was supposed to be the second game, he thought maybe you finish it off in, in two games instead of going to the third game. I mean, it all ended up working out pretty well that was such a uh, such a unique environment and you talked about Mississippi State going to Mississippi State I guess that would have been your sophomore year uh, for the right, regional right. that year and there was a lot of talk about that when Notre Dame went to the super regional this past season you know trip to Starkville and and all that different kind of stuff just being in that atmosphere from your sophomore year not just going through that experience but also including going through that experience but just the whole thing. How much did that, do you think, help prepare you and, and, the, and the veteran guys that you had, especially on that team, for, for both winning the regional and, and the super regional and just kind of being on the big stage? All of those moments were building blocks. I think back to that, and I think that the, the lessons that I teach my children today, you know, you take one step forward, and sometimes you feel like you take a step back, but you're just building. And every single one, we're building blocks. When we when we were fresh, you know, our freshman year, uh, we came in and they had expanded the tournament, Sean, from 48 teams to 64 teams to make it very similar to the NCAA regional, like you have the basketball uh -huh. tournament. And so we made that uh, 64 team tournament and it just got trounced by uh, <laughs> Cal State Fullerton. It was a, you know, it was great experience, but they beat us on our home turf. And then we come back the next year, go down to Mississippi State, playing an unbelievable regional lose in the last inning on a walk-off home run and they got to beat us twice in the last day you know then to go and host again our junior year to play florida international and and play well in that tournament but to always fall a little bit short man we were ready you know and so it was like all of the stars aligned in that moment you know to win the regional and then to go down to florida state and i don't think there was one florida state fan that think thinks thought we stood a chance you know um, I love the story that, like, in the fifth inning of the third game, got, you know, fans were calling Omaha still to reserve uh, flights and, you know, reserve uh, hotels because they still thought we were, you know, we were not going to win that game. 
Yeah, I I can uh, I can vouch for all of that. <laughs> Just kind of witnessing, <laughs> sort of you know, sitting right behind the crowd. But you know, there you could you, you could you could tell you could tell there was there was. Um, yeah, they had their own belief, and I mean, you know, they're they're Florida State. <laughs> I guess that's what they're supposed to think with this little team from the north comes down, and you know, all that <laughs> right. kind of good stuff. But yeah. you know, let's let's kind of circle back to to Omaha. Now you're in that elimination game against Rice. You're in the ninth inning, bottom of the ninth inning, one out. You're down by a run. You're coming up to the plate. If you lose, you go. Uh, two and Q, as they say in Omaha, O and two, and and you're done. But you, so you come to the plate. There's a left-hander on the mound. You're stepping into the batter's box. So take us through that at bat, Steve. Well, so I come up and there's uh, there's one out, and I'm I'm thinking to myself, no matter what, I got to get on base. You know, my my role for the four years on that team was to get on base because we always had guys that could plug and guys that could hit the ball a long way. Mm -hmm. And my feeling was if we're down a run, I got to do something to get on here so that we can make something happen. Uh, And, you know, having Solman and Stavisky behind me, there was so much confidence that if I could just get on base, we will produce a run somehow. These guys are going to put the bat on the ball and make things happen. So really, if you go through the at-bat, he goes 1-0, 2-0, 3-0. And I'm thinking to myself, just like everybody else, okay, I'm walking here. Right. This, this is great. <laughs> you know, we're gonna get we're gonna get a guy on base, and I'm thinking like everybody else. Hey, take a strike, right? So I take a strike, and then you know, I look down at Coach Neri and him and I are th- thinking the same thing. Take another strike, because to me, I'm not a guy that can hit the ball out of the park. Right. So, what's it gonna do to take another strike? And that's exactly right, because my my feeling that year was you're not gonna strike me out. I know that. So what what is it taking strike two? And if the umpire thinks it's close and gives me ball four, I'm on base, right? So then he goes, throws strike two. I go, okay, now i got a battle. Now we're in a battle here because he's a fantastic pitcher. His name is Justin Crowder. He actually got drafted by the A's as well that year. Yeah, oh, that's and, right. Um, and he was a fantastic pitcher. And I think he was under two in his ERA. He was almost unhittable. Um, and so – so then he goes 3-2. He goes, I believe he goes fastball away, and I foul it off. Then he goes, I think he goes another fastball, and I foul it off again. So I'm seven pitches into the at-bat, six, seven pitches into the at-bat, and I'm thinking there's no way he's going to throw me a breaking ball here because, you know, little Steve Stanley, 5-7 guy, can't hit it out of the park. I'm not going to take a chance to throw a breaking ball off the plate, ball four, and I let him on base. Sure enough, the guy has enough confidence in his breaking ball, 3-2, to throw it. So lefty, lefty, throws me a slider on the outside corner, which is probably strike three. I'm out in front of the pitch, my, my, you know, my front foot, if you know baseball. I'm out in front, I lose my weight, and then, boom, I flick it with my wrist right. into right center field. And the guy in center is playing in the left center field gap because I, generally speaking, hit the ball the other way. Yeah. You flip it in that direction. That's right. Yeah. Huge gap in right field. And boom, you know, he's way far away from the baseball. I turn around first base. There's no way I'm stopping at second. (laughs) Because now if I can get on third with one out, all someone's got to do is hit the ball in the outfield. We tied the game. So it was just, uh, I mean, it was an electric moment. I don't think I've ever been on a baseball field where I felt like 
the sound was like being at a Notre Dame football game. And that was the same. I mean, it was just, you know, the roar of the crowd was explosive and a lot of just amazing to be, be in that environment. It was. And I, and I went back, and now this is unscientific, but I went back in that audio, and from the ping of the bat till I have you sliding in, you're, you're around 11 and a half, 12 seconds from home to third base. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's moving pretty good, I think, right? I mean, that's... <laughs> I, I, was, I don't think I've ever moved any faster than that in my life, you know. I, I thought I might have been floating on air. You know, you, you just – it's one of those things where you feel like you're fast and then you have a moment like that and you can't believe that you're actually in that moment. Yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to walk. I'm just trying to get on base. And if you can imagine being in that situation where you're just thinking, get on base, get on base, and all of a sudden now it's – now you hit a ball in the gap, you are floating on air. It was pretty special. And I do yeah. remember, you know, just what you were talking about – how you, you were a little off balance, it seemed like, on that swing, like you were yeah. describing there. But yeah. but still, you managed to get it from the outside corner into right center field and obviously hit it pretty hard and uh, got it, you know, gets all the way back to the wall. You get to third base. Steve Solman, of course, singles you home two pitches later to tie it up. And then Brian Stavisky with, with the walk off home run. And I mean, that, yeah. like you talk about, you're not big enough to, to hit it out. Stavo was obviously big enough to hit it out. And, I mean, that was – and we've talked about this before. The wind was not conducive to a ball being hit out to right field that day, but Brian Stavisky still crushed that baseball and got it out through he, the teeth of that wind. John, he's one of the strongest, naturally strong players I've ever played with in my life. Yeah, and He was just – given by God an unbelievable build to play the game of baseball and to play other sports. So when you saw him, he just, you know, he, he looked like a brick house and, and he was <laughs> like that. He just, you know, the thing about Brian was that we, I used to say this, this is funny about Brian. I think he went through something like seven to 10 bats in, within the season because the umpires would check the, the roundness of the bats. And I don't know if that's really the case to this day but back then because he hit the baseball so hard every three or four games there were they were throwing his bats out wow and because (laughs) it was like hitting with a with a cricket stick you know and so he he just he hit the ball harder than anybody I remember when he hit his first home run against Memphis his freshman year and we were down there and I thought, this guy, this is unbelievable. I mean, just threw the wind at right center, and Paul just came off his bat unlike anybody else I'd ever seen. Amazing. So. That is Steve Stanley from Notre Dame's 2002 College World Series team. Those guys are in town this weekend celebrating the 20th anniversary of that team. They're uh, out there watching Notre Dame play Boston College tonight. They'll be out at the ballpark tomorrow as well. Unfortunately, BC leading Notre Dame 7-1 to in the top of the 6th tonight but uh, they'll be introduced before the home crowd at x stadium before tomorrow afternoon's game so you can see those guys out there the 2002 college world series team and again a lot of those guys most of them including steve in town paul Maneri, the head coach as well in town celebrating the 20th anniversary of their 2002 college world series team we're going to do it wrap it up with that Tonight, we're brought to you by Budweiser, the King of Beers, Tim Grau State Farm Insurance, Barnaby's of Mishawaka and Granger, and the Food Bank of Northern Indiana. We've got South Bend Cubs baseball. The pregame show starts at 7.15. First pitch at 7.30 from 
Quad Cities. That is coming up in just a little bit here on Sports Radio 960 AM WSBT. Have a great weekend. Hey everyone, Saltgrass Steakhouse is now open in Mishawaka. Wrangle up the crew and head down to Saltgrass Mishawaka for an unforgettable experience. Sink your teeth into mouth-watering char-grilled, certified Angus beef steaks. Sip on ice-cold craft cocktails. And don't forget to try the famous Spicy Range Rattlers, all made daily in the Scratch Kitchen. Start making delicious memories at Saltgrass Mishawaka, 5126 North Main Street, across from Lazy Boy Furniture Galleries. Dine with us today. 